0: Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast.
1: Today it's just me, Jan Goldsmith. David and Ewan are both busy, but I have an author. I have Gwenda here. Welcome, Gwenda. Thank you, Jen.: So Gwenda Bede-Davy has 10 women telling stories in her book. Gwenda, what are the, all of these women talking about?
2: What are they talking about? Well, they're talking about their childhood, their ch- childhood which um, I defined as ending at uh, uh, 13 years of age or, or when they left primary school, one or the other, uh, because most, uh, particularly in earlier generations, most uh, uh, women did leave school at about 13, um, I think uh the uh, the book covers pretty much 100 years well it does cover and in fact the oldest uh, person in the book was born in 1904 and they talked about what it was like to be a child in uh, in their first 13 years
1: well you know a child really has changed especially in one thing about that school leaving today we've got well, I think you say 87% of women of girls who stay on until year twelve, so that that leaving school when did, when did girls leave school back in
2: a uh, hundred years ago? Well, they left school then at about thirteen. See the compulsory education act only came in in the, the late eighteen hundreds and uh, uh, schools went to many of the schools went to uh, uh, year eight uh, to, to the form two, and that was when they stopped. And uh, there was, in fact, around about 1900, there was uh, what I was thinking was a wonderful uh, certificate called the Sufficiency, Sufficiency Certificate, which said that uh, the recipient was sufficiently educated. They would had enough, in other words. They didn't need any more. And they didn't have many opportunities to get any more because particularly for girls, there were, um, there were virtually no high schools. I mean, even the famous uh, Fort Street uh, High School in Sydney both the girls and boys, didn't start till about 1911. Mm-hmm. So um, the only way they could get a secondary education was if they were wealthy and were able to go to private schools.
1: So it makes you wonder whether it's uh, the girls and their expectations that pushed the change or it was society.
2: <laughs> it's hard to know. I think it was probably more society because one of the sad uh, sort of themes that comes out to me is the that... Um, uh, that girls often, they just accepted their lot. You know, they, they either had to go to work and, in a factory and uh, one of them tells a wonderful story about going to work in a factory when she was uh, 14 she went mm. into the factory but she still used to come home and play with her dolls. Yeah. But also other very bright girls who could have gone on to, even to university, but it didn't even occur to them or their families mm. that they could.
1: Well now, another aspect that comes through a lot of the girls' stories is how pivotal the uh, religious institutions were
2: in organizing a lot of their social get togethers oh absolutely the uh, i mean the the churches were the center of social life in early an uh, early period i mean the earliest interviewed Ethel Carroll, who was born in uh, um uh, 1904. Her family were Methodists, and uh, the Methodists' uh, church round about the early years of the 20th century was extremely important. Um, Newtown Methodist Church is absolutely huge. It's yeah. still it's pos- po- positively a cathedral. But um, most social life revolved around churches and I always remember in recent times some friends of mine who uh, uh, were not religious themselves saying how f- unfortunate it was that there weren't any sort of secular organisations that kids could get such a lot of you know, social interaction from. As they used to from churches, and still do in churches, of course.
1: And one of the other things that a lot of the girls commented on in their books was the end of the year school happenings. You know, there's the school picnics and things like this that, that was organised.
2: Oh yes, yes. So picnics were very important, and of course, uh, apart from the schools, the Sunday school picnics were very mm. important. Sort of right through the uh, well, right through the 20th century. Uh, I mean, things like the Balls and the, and so on, they were from uh, secondary schools. And once upon a time, they would have only been for the more, from the more privileged uh, uh, private schools, but uh, some of which did a wonderful job, with, I must say, particularly so. with, um, you know, girls from r- remote areas. I mean, some of them are such as there's a very famous um, secondary school at Charters Towers of all places, which is still there. And I had a lovely... Um, uh, interaction with uh, in uh, with Ho- in Hobart with the um, uh, s- a school there which was um, gave me a wonderful photograph for the book and in fact the books which uh, oh, yes. people did contribute are, are very important to me. This was from nineteen hundred and three that photograph
1: now i 'm speaking with Gwenda Davy, and I know she 's also been associated with the australian children 's folklore collection <clears throat> and that leads into what girls played with so would tell us just what that folklore um Collections about
2: right. Well, the Australian Children's Folklore Collection was started about well, it's getting on for forty years mm. now. In uh, June Factor and I started it when we were both teaching at the Institute of Early Childhood Development. Um, she particularly was involved with the collection of children's playground rhymes. In fact, she had a lot of her uh, um, her peer students would collect them. And my particular interest was actually I was very involved in multicultural affairs So, um, and I um, worked on a very big project for a whole year. I actually got a a grant from the Children's Commission that uh, I think it lasted about one year and then it fell along with the Whitlam government. Mm. But um, that was collecting songs and rhymes that were told in about eight community languages. And with that, that, we had a huge body of data from those, all those. And so we decided to set up the uh, children's folklore collection, which we did in a filing cabinet, but it's now... um It's now a big archive. In fact, it's probably the biggest archive of children's playground games in the world. With the UNESCO
1: registry. Yes. Oh, well done you. So you were able to sort of, you knew about all of these games over the years. So with the the social histories you did of these women over 100 years, Mm. there were some games that just continued on that were played by girls in schoolyards, all the time
2: absolutely there's it's one of the most it 's one of the most ancient of um traditions is games and children 's games I mean there are games documented back in ancient Roman times, such as knuckle bones or jacks you know where you toss the knuckle bones, yeah. sheep 's knuckle bones up into and that 's been documented in ancient Roman mm-hmm. times but uh, and and also it, it's it 's really multi-ethnic or international. Just about every culture has children's games of that sort. And there are some changes. One of the changes is that uh, the circular singing games that were very popular in um, round, say, for the earliest interview around about 1910, things like uh, Green Gravel, Green Gravel, Your True Love Is Dead, Mm -hmm. um, something or other, Hang Down Your Head. Those circle games are pretty well dropped out. On the other hand there's a new the new newest game that's come in is probably elastics which okay. came in in the 1960s which we think came from Asia. Uh, where, you know, have a big loop of elastics and fancy patterns jumping in and out are done. But other than that, the the skipping, the hand clapping uh, and the string games, I mean, Judy McKinty, uh, who's also um, involved with the Children's Folklore Collection at uh, the museum, where it is now, um, is an expert on string games
1: I think the other one, too, is cubby houses. You know, it's sort of mm. making cubby houses, whether they're inside the house or at school, under a bush or something. And I think that's that's sort of one of those imaginary games that sort of still continues. But things have changed in schools, and you're right about forbiddings.
2: Yes. Well, this is, this is actually internationally a very serious issue, uh, particularly in uh, America, uh, where in fact a number of schools have banned recess time mm. and uh, completely abolished it uh in the interests of uh discipline and greater scholarship we haven't gone that far but um but there are a lot of there's a lot of nervousness around one of the themes that I write about in my book is the age of fear uh which I talk about when uh, you know people are afraid to let their children uh, play outside and uh, and so on So, Mm. mm. yeah, it's
1: um you you well that's something that within schools it's a new um, term helicopter parenting you know yes
2: (laughs) driving your kids everywhere yes and not and mm.
1: that whole fear because you do write about the uh, Beaumont children and how that Mm. brought children from just playing anywhere they wanted to closer to home. So the skipping rhymes, you know, I, I laughed about this one because it, it, a lot the kids wouldn't actually even understand skipping rhymes like a Catholic dog, proddy frog, you know.
2: Yes, <laughs> those, those ones. Well, it's actually that's that's a very interesting one of the interviews in my book, my Girl Talk book, which has yeah. uh, came out at the end of last year, um, is um, an interview with uh, a Catholic uh, a family, um, Claire Forbes and her family. Her sister is a is a um, nun and uh, in Cambodia actually, and uh, they both work with refugees. But um, she, the, the little country town where she grew up. Um, there was none of this prejudice I mean, that sectarian prejudice just was rife all throughout the 20th century you know the uh, you couldn't marry out you couldn't mm. marry a catholic you know et cetera et cetera that's all that's really all gone which is quite remarkable and uh, but it could have been because in the little town where she lived there was there was only one school which was a state school and the kids all went there <laughs> and also they all went there and also the the uh, the priest who came to give religious instruction to the yeah. Catholic children, he was very popular, mainly because he, I think he had very bad driving habits and he used to <laughs> terrify everybody by screeching to a halt One of the other naughty
1: little bits that were in these skipping games was it came up with uncle with a sausage on his bum. Now of course that sort of sounds terribly rude but it's kind of like one of the only things that sort of gets close to anything sexual in these girls you know,
2: there's not too many of these girls who talk about anything to do with sex No there's, there's not, that's true and in fact I um, I decided that um, I would, in fact, include an interview done by Judy McKinty with me, by myself, which I did put under a pseudonym because um, I think most, particularly the older uh, interviewees, were very reluctant to talk about it. And uh, and most people were fairly reluctant. But um, because it's one of the I, – I thought it was really important that it should be included because, in fact, it is, to me, it's, it's one of the – uh, unfortunate aspects of girls' life and childhood today, which is the sexualization, particularly through commercial interests. Um, a few years ago, I think Emma Rush created a furor, on academic in uh, a furor, by coining the term corporate pedophilia, mm. you know, whereas um, the you know, sexualization. sexualization of young girls and so on. So, um, and to me, that is an important theme. I and mean, there's look, there's good and bad over the hundred years. A lot of it's bad, and uh, and some of it is um, a lot of it is good.
1: One of the um, women being talking about said, her, her, one of her teachers, a man teacher, who was the best teacher that she had got sacked because he wanted to talk, he wanted the class to learn about sex education. And you think about what's pushed on teachers to teach kids now, you know, everything from values to sex
2: education to drug awareness, you know. Yes. (laughs) It's a a hard lot being a teacher these days. I would like to double all their salaries (laughs) immediately. I think they deserve it. But that was 1936, actually, when that teacher was sacked for trying to introduce some useful sex education.
1: None of the 10 women show much interest or questioning on anything political or, or, or social, such as the wars or the depression. It's the fear of illness that occurs, causes the family concerns. What kind of illnesses were they talking about?
2: Well, you know, at the end, and the, of course, World War One was a devastation to uh, I mean there were more pe- men killed, more people killed in World War I, which about sixty thousand Australians, than in world war two and, uh, and of course, at the end of the first world war, which was one thousand nine hundred and eighteen there was this enormous epidemic of what was called Spanish flu, and um, thousands and thousands, mostly young adults. Died at that time, so you could say that um, in the 1920s, for instance, the early 1920s, Australia was a nation in mourning, a mourning all the, the the people killed in the war, and then all mm. those who died. So there are some mention, there are some uh, mentions of war and and so on. Um, again, Claire Forbes, her, her father was the only. Uh, uh, of of all the interviewees in the book hers was the only one who actually served in World War 1 because he was a very much an older mm. father mm. and she feels that his um uh his hatred of war you know did influence Definitely. her greatly and caused in fact she's now one of the heads of where is her sisters and nun in Cambodia mm. working but she's now the head of the grandmothers against detention of refugee children. So,
1: Infantile par- par- paralysis, mm. polio, that, that influenced a lot of the people here too. You know, they were moved away to better, healthier air so that the kids Absolutely. didn't catch it. Absolutely. And Sister Kenny, her name comes through quite yes. a few of this. But there's also the scarlet fever, whooping cough, mm. lockjaw and yeah. the immense amount of time, the labour-intensive fight to keep out bedbugs with one family.
2: Absolutely 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 and um one of the 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 oldest one describes lifting up a, a picture um, off the wall and finding oh, it was crawling with bedbugs oh, all behind oh, it. But the, the Sister Kenny story is quite important in my book because one of the most delightful interviews, and remember all these are Australian-born women, all Australian-born, uh, but uh, it was a lovely interview given to me by Sue Broadway who was one of the founders of Circus Oz. Well, now, her mother, Shirley Broadway, uh, was one of uh, she got uh, her she they came from a family of four generations of show business mm. so there's a lot of really interesting stories there, but she um uh, she con she got uh, infantile paralysis or polio when she was about six but she was lucky in that she was treated by Sister Kenny. There's a beautiful photograph in the book of uh, Sister Kenny taking uh, uh, that Sue's mother at age seven back to Sydney after she'd had some treatment?
1: Look, um, when we think about entertainments, we also look at these childhood entertainments and how radio used to be so important. And there was a show called Argonauts that went for about 40 years. But even recently, you know, when you think about play schools being on for 50 Mm. years... But then there's other things that young girls would have been interested in, like the Mary Down School, of May Down School of Dancing. Yes, it's over was, 100
2: years old. I, I was
1: amazed that was that so old. Yes,
2: dancing was, was a very important pastime for children all through these 100 years and uh, perhaps uh, earlier and uh, still today, but it's um, uh, the... Uh, Yes, and of course, May Downs is renowned for training children for the show musicals such as Matilda and so on. But um, it didn't matter where where you came from; all the children seemed to love to dance, and the dancing was very popular. Popular. Look,
1: the ten women—I think they're fascinating stories. But I'm absolutely amazed about Daphne Matthews. Now, young girl Daphne, she was sent off with her mother. To school with a because um, the, there was the school excursion going to the dental hospital. <laughs> well, do yes, you want to right up
2: the story? Yes. <laughs> well, the mother didn't actually go to the school. That's the point. The mother no, signed a piece of paper for one extraction. saying she would give permission for one extraction. Anyway, the kids were all marched off to the dental hospital from the South Melbourne primary school to march to the dental hospital which was in um, St Kilda Road and in fact poor Daphne had 13 teeth extracted, 13 with laughing gas and then presumably when she woke up they all had to walk back to the South Melbourne school and then back home again. (laughs) I mean, it's it's absolutely horrific horrific story. Yes,
1: um, she had the other story, which actually amazed me. That she she was travelling with her family up to Sydney, and they had to report in at the police station to say that they were leaving Victoria just in case they got lost. <laughs> Yes, it is. It's it's remarkable, isn't it? And sort of the other term that came from somebody else's um, story was how she was sent down to get a penny worth of window lollies.
2: Oh, yes, like, window there's... lollies, yes. They were the ones that would slightly... Um, uh, slightly uh, um, faded, I oh, suppose, yeah, and they were good. cheap. And, of course, you also had uh, the broken biscuits was in earlier oh. years. That was very popular. Well, or the down end
1: and, of the, uh, the sausages. Yeah, that's right,
2: the end. And, the, oh. and the, um, the man who ran what was called the ham and beef shop would say to them sometimes, you know, no ends, only roosters. <laughs> no and ends. It was his little no ends, <laughs> roosters. But they would be well, often given those ends free.
1: I, I just sort of think about, you know, the past and these girls going mm. through all of these and I know there was some of the uh, games they played that rang true to me and I look at the girls now and I think, oh, well, maybe they're still playing with the dolls and making dolls clothes and uh, playing Skippy <laughs> Well, they are.
2: That's true. I as mean, well as computer, games. as well as computer games, and um, yes, things on their mobile. I mean, there are there are certainly big um, hurdles for children to face today, for girls to face today. And I have mentioned already that I think the commercial sexualisation of mm-hmm. young girls is a very big issue. But also the uh, the influence of the um, internet is is very powerful.
1: You gave um, a percentage of how many young girls under the age of 12 have mobile phones, I was really com- surprised about. It's a
2: big percentage. It's very, it is, it's very low. And again, part of that is tied up with the age of fear, that, uh, you know, people with terrible fear of stranger danger, you know, even though, in fact, the statistics all show that most children are, are likely to be abused by somebody who's well known to them, either their family or a trusted uh, mm. um, person, such as a, you know, sadly, a priest.
1: I've been speaking with Gwenda B. Davies about her book, Girl Talk 100 Years of Australian Girls' Childhood. Well, I think we could have chatted on for ages, but I've got somebody else to talk to. So thank you. A pleasure, Jan. Right. Uh, Jackie Hallward, are you there?
0: I am, how
1: oh, are you? I'm always pleased <laughs> that the phone line works and there's always somebody on the other end. Yeah. Now, Jackie Howard, you're a wrangler.
0: Mm, now, in I the am. in the literary
1: field, how does a wrangler fit in?
0: I am responsible for keeping my judges under control.
1: And your judges, what are they judging?
0: We we have just finished the judging of um This year's 18th David Awards uh, for crime books written by Australian women. So we had 101 books submitted for judging and we have categories. We have um, adult crime novels, young adult crime novels, children's mystery books um, and um, non-fiction, true crime books, and then we open the whole list up to our members, and they can vote for their favourite.
1: It's great looking through that list and knowing so many of those authors have come into uh, published or not and chatted with with us about those books. Mm. There's some fabulous, fabulous titles, and I you'd have to wrangle hard, I think, Jackie, because it, it'd be hard to choose.
0: It, 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 look, it is, and we we have six judges, myself included, and five others. And I make sure every book is read by two people. We do a lot of talking by email during the year. We discuss books that have really impacted us and the ones we think should everyone else should read as well. So we do a lot of talking and a lot of um, a lot of communicating of the, the books we think are in contention.
1: Why do you think a female crime or women writing crime is so popular?
0: Oh, I don't look. There are. I was saying yesterday there. Are, you could do a PhD on this subject. Women are committed crime readers and also writers as you can tell from you know 101 books. I think it's a safe place to look at the issues that crop up in society whether it's about um, people trafficking, drug use, violence against women. These are subjects that impact on us on our day-to-day life. In literature we can examine those, um, those issues in a safe place and so, you know, we, we can read a book that horrifies us and put it down and walk away and then come back to it when we're ready. And usually these books have a, have a great solution at the end as well. Yeah.
1: What I was really pleased about is that you've welcomed self-published books mm. into the um, awards this year. Yes,
0: we have, yeah. So there's about 20 self-published books and one of them made it to the, to the short list, Ellie Marnie's No Limits, which is, which is a young adult book
1: fantastic. So when when is the Davitt? No, you better explain. Why is it called the Davitt yeah. Award?
0: It is named after Ellen Davitt, who wrote Australia's first uh, mystery novel, Force and Fraud, in 1865. And um, Lucy Sussex, a historian and, and great sister, uh, has done a lot of research on Ellen, Ellen Davitt. And I think she found her grave site. And oh. we had a you know, great celebration around that gravesite and decided to commemorate Ellen Davitt with the awards. yeah,
1: sisters in crime know how to celebrate. We Um, certainly do. So (laughs)
0: when when
1: is the Davitt Award going to be announced?
0: It will be announced on Saturday the 11th of August at um, the George Building at Swinburne University's Technology, who, you know, Swinburne has supported us for the last couple of years and have been fantastic. So if people are interested in going you can go to our website, sistersincrime.org.au and book for the Dabbits through there. And on the night, we'll be awarding all, all the awards and also Lee Redhead, local um, crime writer, will be interviewing a visiting Danish crime writer, Joe yeah. Joe um, DeVan.
1: I, I like the way that you've got support from uh, Swinburne Uni, but you've mm. also got support from the Danish Arts Foundation yes, for this author. Fantastic. Yeah. So tell us a bit about this author.
0: I, I have to. I'm sorry, I don't know too much about Sissel Joe. I'm not a great Nordic crime reader, I'm afraid. Oh, it's pretty popular. So, that that she, Nordic yes, crime look, stuff. She should be fantastic. But she's got, she's got a,
1: an Australian connection. She's the, the. You probably know more than me, Jen. Oh well, sorry. I can tell you because I think this is really interesting. So her next book coming out has this Australian connection. She's married to an Australian guy, and it's all about the Box Hill Salvation Army Boys' oh, fantastic. Home. Fantastic. Oh, and wow. She's, yeah, she's she's going to put you know this into her next book. I thought, mm-hmm. oh, well done. That'll be a good one to read.
0: Yeah, that'll be fantastic, yeah.
1: So Sisters in Crime, the Davitt Award is on Saturday the 11th of August at Swinburne. Tickets are still available.
0: They, they certainly are. They opened yesterday, so there's, there's plenty there, but getting quickly.
1: And something a little bit closer to ty- time and now in, and here, July the 20th. That's next, that's Saturday week. You've got yes, Small Towns, yes. Big Secrets, Criminal Intentions.
0: Yeah. And that'll be at the Rising Sun in South Melbourne on, on Eastern Road. Um, upstairs, it's our usual haunt for, for panel events. And you can book, through again, through Eventbrite, right through our website, or you can pay on the night.
1: So, uh, and um, women who have been h- here in our program, Sue Williams and Aofi. Um, mm,
0: she's fantastic, Sue.
1: Uh, Clifford, okay. Well, Jackie Howard, wrangler, get out there, wrangle some more. Oh, and no, I've,
0: uh, I've had enough wrangling for the moment. Oh, I can't <laughs> believe
1: it. That's what you are good at. And Sisters in Crime, always a great um, organization. And our our guest today, Gwenda Davy, is also a member. Thank you very much, Jackie.
0: Thank you. CJ. Thank you.